love, 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 yada, yada, yada. That's how the guy with a drink in his hand summarized his view of what the church had, had to offer. Unlike a lot of people who redden in embarrassment and then drift away when discovering my occupation at a cocktail party, this guy was only too eager to plunge into his opinion of church. No offense, he said, but I think the church is full of hypocrites. And then he added a couple of other descriptors. Now, he had consumed his fair share of a certain single malt scotch that our host favored. I guessed he was likely noisier than usual and that I had inadvertently stepped into a conversation with an angry ex-churchgoer whose sense of appropriate boundaries had been dampened to a soggy fare-thee-well. I braced myself for what was coming next. But it turned out differently than I had anticipated, quite differently. Oh, he did, he did repeat the standard litany of churchy sins, you know, pride and arrogance, out of touch, judgmental, and so on. But after he got that out, he paused and then told me a story from some 20 years earlier about his brother who had died of AIDS. It was clearly still a very, very potent memory. He came from a church-going family. His younger brother had been especially active, even when they had become adults and drifted into their individual lives and careers. His brother immediately joined a local congregation. He did a lot there. Older brother had always been impressed by the sincerity and compassion of younger. Impressed and proud, actually. Younger even started a program for homeless families in the community, which made it all the more stunning when he received the letter from his church that he and his partner should probably find another sort of spiritual home that their so-called lifestyle conflicted with church standards. Then AIDS, then, well, this was before the new generation of drugs and all. As he told his tale, he took on a humble, melancholic demeanor. He said that long ago he had let go of his why question concerning his brother's premature death, but he hadn't let go of his questions and feelings about that church. Why of all places, the place of the supposed love gospel, was it the church that had given his brother the most severe knee-jerk rejection? It had hurt him deeply. And by the way, he added, wasn't that just the way the church so often responded to what it didn't know or didn't like? Now, I could have said something about the church being a place for sinners, that the healthiest churches understood that the major difference between those inside and those outside was that those inside humbly acknowledged this fact, which didn't make for perfection, of course, but under the right conditions made for the lives that were constantly moving and growing heavenward. But I didn't say that at the time because it was clear that in addition to stumbling into an angry ex-churchgoer, I had also stumbled into a compassionate, thoughtful man who needed badly to rehearse the story of grave rejection from a group of people who should have known better. He's not alone in his lament, of course. Southern novelist and struggling Christian Reynolds Price once wrote, Orthodox Christianity, the church in most of its past and present forms, 
has defaced and even reversed whole huge aspects of Jesus' teaching. But in no case has the church turned more culpably from his aim and his practice than in its hateful rejection of what it sees as outcasts. The whores and cheats, the traitors and killers, the baffled and stunned, the social outlaw, the maimed and the hideous contagious. That's pretty harsh, but it's only untrue to the extent that the other side of the truth is left unsaid, that the church is still the custodian for the astonishing gospel of love it so imperfectly embodies. Its own message provides its critique, which must be the case given the burden of the message it bears. A human thing attempts to mediate a divine thing. The best that could ever be achieved are people saved by the very same love they announce God imparts to all which they routinely mangle. So from time to time, the church grows into a larger version of itself, not in all times and all places, but in many times and places, nevertheless. And friends, I think this is one of those times and one of those places. Not perfectly, of course, but aren't we all increasingly coming to understand how love calls us to risk opening our arms, our hearts, and minds as wide as Jesus did. The story you heard from Acts tells of another time and place this risky behavior was embraced that changed the church and the world. It's more remarkable given that the story is repeated three times. Clearly, it was an important awakening for the early church almost as if to say, have you gotten it yet? Here's the backdrop. After resurrection, Peter emerged as a leader of the followers of Jesus. The question arose as to whether Gentiles could also be included within the range of God's love. After all, there were strict tribal laws that separated the Jews from other peoples, dietary and ritual requirements that sustained their uniqueness. They had been chosen by God, nurtured in a covenantal relationship. Wasn't Jesus, the Jew, the fulfillment of that covenant? Well, as our story begins today, some are criticizing Peter for his association with Gentiles. In response, he reports a wild vision he experienced in which every sort of animal is presented to him, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. And a voice said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. In his vision, he replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. He said this because of the importance of the dietary laws that dictated what he could eat and with whom he could eat. He had never been guilty, he says, of eating unclean food. He was always faithful to his tribal boundaries. But the voice and the vision came to him three times. Three times it said, get up and eat. Just then, several men appeared who were sent to him from a Roman officer, Cornelius, a Gentile, a member of the very army that had put Jesus to death and still oppressed and occupied Israel. Peter went, met Cornelius, and was astonished by how Cornelius had come to accept the way of Jesus. Peter then baptized Cornelius, he ate with Cornelius, and he came to understand the radical nature of the vision. 
The voice had said, don't call anything I have created unclean. The old limitations of us and them, insiders and outsiders, began to fall away, and the expansive, mind-blowing ramification of God's love became clear. Minds were changed, lives were changed, and this changing became a healthy contagion. Peter was changed, his worldview changed, his understanding of who was in and who was out changed, his capacity for love changed. As a result, the way of Jesus spread throughout the known world. And again, note that this lesson is embedded within our scriptures, forever challenging the relentlessly regressive human capitulation to fear and arrogance about the dreaded other. Now, it was never an anything-goes religious evolution. On the contrary, it had the disciplines of the most rigorous sort of love, as modeled by Jesus. But that very discipline led the faithful to understand that no prior condition prevented the reach of God's grace to any person. And as we know from our vantage point in the year 2022, this has been among the most difficult lessons to be learned. It seems every generation confronts the demands of this revelation, this problem with confessing our persistent practice of fencing off the righteous from the unrighteous, establishing crushing criteria for identifying and separating the dreaded other, whoever they may be, with arrogant and sometimes deadly posturing of our innate superiority. But, friends, whenever a generation manages to embrace this revelation, it can rise to the full height of its humanity. While languishing in jail, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote one of the 20th century's most provocative religious statements. In his letter from the Birmingham City Jail, responding to a chorus of religious leaders who asked him to, you know, dampen what they refer to as his extremist views, King wrote, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being an extremist. Was not Jesus an extremist in love? Love your enemies and pray for them that despitefully use you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was Paul not an extremist of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist? This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. Was not Thomas Jefferson an extremist? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So, the question is not whether we will be extremist, but what kind of extremist will we be? Will we be extremist for hate, or will we be extremist for love? Peter confronted the meaning of extreme love. He certainly remembered the commandment Jesus announced the night of his betrayal that you heard Nicole read earlier. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Love was the linchpin of their faith. Not correct doctrine or ritual behaviors. Love was the point of it. As Peter tried to live into this commandment with integrity, 
he discovered that he had not nearly understood its full implications until it came to him unbidden in a dream. And even then, he had to experience for himself how God was vitally present in someone he would have considered the other, unclean, even a potential enemy. Didn't Jesus regularly associate with all the wrong types? Wasn't he constantly breaking down fences between people, obliterating them with love and compassion while bestowing dignity and acceptance? These fences remain a problem for us, a very big problem. And the thing is, we all have them. We all have our version of aversion for the other the unclean, the unacceptable, the challenging, the fearsome. In the words of Reynolds Price, the baffled and stunned, the social outlaw, the maimed and hideous contagious, however they manifest to us. Yet, yet, we have been assigned a powerful mission. Gosh, an extraordinary mission, a a revolutionary, world-transforming mission I give you a new commandment. Jesus said that you love one another just as I have loved you. You should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another.